Welcome back to Roshcast, episode 36. We're back at it this week with another collaborative episode with the EM Clerkship Podcast. This week, we're both focusing on pediatrics. Don't forget also that we're in the midst of a trauma ringtone contest. Listen closely for the ringtone during this episode or an upcoming episode, and email us the exact time of the ringtone to roshcast at roshreview.com or tweet it at us at roshcast to win a subscription. That'll certainly be useful with the in-training exam around the corner. For this week's rapid review, let's go over some of the most recent reviews posted on the Rosh Review blog. Which parasite is responsible for cysticercosis? Cysticercosis is caused by tenia solium, a common tapeworm. It's transmitted via pork. Patients can present with seizures and CNS cysts. And moving on to another blog post, how do patients with acute angle closure glaucoma classically present? Patients with acute angle closure glaucoma classically present with severe eye pain, blurry vision, photophobia, and a dilated pupil. The intraocular pressure in this case would be elevated. And sticking with the eye for the last one, what's the classic presentation of iritis? Iritis presents with perilimbic injection, a constricted pupil, pain, photophobia, and blurry vision. You'd expect the intraocular pressure in this case to be normal or even low. Remember that you can head over to roshreview.com slash blog to review some great tables and go over these pearls as well as many others. All right, let's head over to the PZD to get this episode going. A four-week-old boy presents with a two-week history of increasing dyspnea, cough, and poor feeding. On exam, he has conjunctivitis and rails. He's also tachypnic. A chest x-ray shows hyperinflation and diffuse interstitial infiltrates. Which of the following is the most likely cause? Is it A, chlamydia trachomatis, B, parainfluenza virus, C, respiratory syncytial virus, or D, staphylococcus species? So here we have a four-week-old presenting with dyspnea, tachypnea, and RALS, with an x-ray showing hyperinflation and diffuse interstitial infiltrates. I'm going to go with choice A, chlamydia trachomatis. Exactly. This question stem gives you a few of the classic features of an infant chlamydial infection, most of which you just pointed out. The typical age group for chlamydial infections is usually 3 to 16 weeks. They're usually sick for a couple of weeks, and when they present, you can expect a non-toxic afebrile infant who is tachypnic with a prominent staccato cough. You can also appreciate rails or wheezes. And as in this kid, the x-ray will likely show hyperinflation with diffuse interstitial or patchy infiltrates. 50% will also have conjunctivitis. Do you recall what you'll find on the blood work? Blood work for those with a chlamydial pneumonia may show an eosinophilia. Exactly. Eosinophilia for chlamydial pneumonia. But how do you treat it? Chlamydial pneumonia can be treated with azithromycin, 10 milligrams per kilogram on the first day, and then 5 milligrams per kilogram on days 2 to 5. And what about the eyes? Do they need specific additional treatment for the conjunctivitis? Oral antibiotics will actually cover the conjunctivitis adequately. Excellent. And I'm going to run through the other answer choices while you load up the next question. Choice B, parainfluenza virus. Infants with parainfluenza virus typically present with coryza and a low-grade fever, followed by the classic barking cough of croup. Choice C, RSV. Infants with RSV usually present with lower respiratory tract infections like bronchiolitis. You can expect a cough, fever, rhinorrhea, wheezing with labored respirations, and even hypoxia in severe cases. Although similar to chlamydial pneumonia, you can differentiate the two as chlamydial pneumonia is often associated with conjunctivitis and has a subacute onset. And lastly, choice D, staph pneumonia, those kids would be very sick. The onset is usually quite acute. On exam, you would expect tachypnea, dyspnea, and localized or even diffuse bronchopneumonia. On their blood work, you would usually expect a prominent leukocytosis. All right, let's move across the hall where the nurses have already placed your next patient in isolation. 
a six-year-old boy from Bangladesh, presents with fever and rash. The fever started three days ago and was followed by a rash which started on the head and then spread to the rest of the body. Your exam reveals a well-appearing child with a maculopapular rash and posterior cervical lymphadenopathy. Which of the following is the most likely cause for this presentation? Is it A, measles virus, B, mumps virus, C, parvovirus B19, or D, rubella virus? Definitely corpede, so let's go through this one by one. Choice A, measles, that usually presents with a fever, followed by a rash and coplic spots. So this is definitely possible, but it wouldn't explain the notable lymphadenopathy. Choice B, mumps, that classically presents with infectious parotitis. Certainly not the case here. Choice C, parvovirus B19, that can cause erythema infectiosum with the classic slap cheek appearance. Again, not the case here. I guess that leaves me with choice D, rubella. Great way to work through this question. This is definitely rubella or German measles. Rubella usually presents as a mild febrile illness with a diffuse maculopapular rash along with generalized malaise and posterior cervical and posterior lymphadenopathy. And the rash of rubella generally begins on the head and face and progresses downwards to the trunk. That's right, as is shown with this six-year-old boy. The nurses were right to put this patient on isolation. Rubella is transmitted through respiratory secretions and it's highly communicable. Do you remember the treatment? There's actually no need for treatment for rubella. The disease is self-limited. But don't forget that although self-limited in an infant, the effects on a developing fetus can be severe. Sorry to cut that discussion short, but a peds recess just came in. A four-year-old boy is presenting in respiratory failure. You reach for an endotracheal tube. Which of the following represents the correct endotracheal tube for this four-year-old boy? Is it A, a 4-0 cuffed endotracheal tube? B, a 5-0 uncuffed endotracheal tube? C, a 5-5 cuffed endotracheal tube? Or D, a 6-0 cuffed endotracheal tube? For a four-year-old boy, the answer would have to be choice B, a 5-0 uncuffed endotracheal tube. That's correct, but I don't think all our listeners have a math PhD like you, so how do you come to this conclusion? Well, there are two formulas you will want to know here. For a cuffed ET tube, you take the age, divide it by 4, and add 3.5. For an uncuffed ET tube, take the age, again divide it by 4, but this time add 4 instead of 3.5. All right, so that raises the next obvious question. Why would you choose a cuffed or an uncuffed tube? Great question. In the past, uncuffed ET tubes were preferred due to the prevailing thought that there was potential to cause necrosis and perforation of the trachea. Recently, cuffed ET tubes are gaining favor in all except neonates. Cuffed ET tubes have some definite advantages. Notably, they reduce air leak and also reduce the risk of aspiration. And don't forget that if you can't remember the ET tube size during a peds recess, you can always turn to your Braslow tape as a reference. I'm certain all your shops have one, so make sure you know where to find it as well as how to use it before you actually need it. You're up next with a pediatric trauma question. Which of the following is the most common manifestation of abusive head trauma in infants? Is it A, epidural hematoma, B, retinal hemorrhage, C, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or D, subdural hematoma? The answer here is choice B. Retinal hemorrhages are the most common manifestation of abusive head trauma in infants. That's right. Retinal hemorrhages are incredibly common in abusive head trauma. They're present in up to 75% of cases and are almost pathognomonic for abusive head trauma. This was previously known as shaken baby syndrome. And why are retinal hemorrhages so common? That's a great question, and this is still unclear despite decades of research. The retinal hemorrhages are thought to be due to increased intracranial pressure that is transmitted to the eye directly during the trauma, or increased pressure along the retinal veins, which leads to disruption of the vessel. Since we're talking about classic findings associated with non-accidental trauma, let's go over a few other suspicious fractures. 
What type of rib fractures should raise your suspicion? Posterior rib fractures with no overlying bruising are very suspicious. And in the long bones, what locations and types of fractures are suspicious for non-accidental trauma? Metaphyseal fractures, bucket handle fractures, or corner fractures are very suspicious and nearly pathognomonic for non-accidental trauma. They're present in up to 50% of abused infants less than 18 months old. And also be on the lookout for sternal fractures, scapular fractures, and skull fractures. All right, you're up for the next one and we're moving from a trauma to a medical emergency. Which of the following should be administered to a symptomatic three-day-old infant with a glucose level of 25 milligrams per deciliter? Is it A, one milliliter per kilogram of 50% dextrose, B, two milliliters per kilogram of 25% dextrose, C, five milliliters per kilogram of 10% dextrose, or D, glucagon subcutaneously? Super important since hypoglycemia is the most common metabolic problem in neonates. The answer here is choice C, 5 milliliters per kilogram of 10% dextrose. That's right. For those that are less than one year old, you should use D10, 5 to 10 mils per kilogram of dextrose. In those one to eight years old, you should turn to D25, 2 to 4 mils per kilogram of dextrose. And lastly, in those over eight, you can use the adult D50, 1 to 2 mils per kilogram. If you're really in a bind and you don't have the child's weight, you can also estimate the weight with an easy formula, 2 times the age in years plus 8. We'll post a great teaching image up on the blog that will help you remember all of this. Definitely worth checking out. But back to the question, which neonates are at risk of hypoglycemia? Neonates at the greatest risk for hypoglycemia include those that are large or small for their gestational age, those born to mothers with insulin-dependent diabetes, those born prematurely, those with sepsis, those with mothers with chorioamnionitis, and those with inborn errors of metabolism. Impressive. That's literally the entire list. And what symptoms might you see to suggest hypoglycemia in a newborn? Neonates can present in any number of ways. These include jitteriness, tachypnea, hypotonia, poor feeding, apnea, temperature instability, seizures, and lethargy. And before we move on to the last question, do you know why we don't want to use the higher concentrations of dextrose in the younger kids? Like, why don't we just use D50 for neonates? That's a great question, and there are a few reasons why. First, using the higher concentrations of dextrose puts infants at risk for rebound hypoglycemia. Secondly, the higher concentrations of dextrose are hypertonic, and this can lead to phlebitis, thrombosis, tissue necrosis, and other dangerous complications. And what about choice D, glucagon? Why isn't that the best answer? I think that's a pretty good choice. Another great question. In adults, glucagon can definitely be given for hypoglycemia. However, in infants, they don't have substantial glycogen stores, so the glucagon won't produce a notable increase in blood glucose concentration. Right. So in infants, remember that dextrose should be your go-to for hypoglycemia, not glucagon. I think that's enough hypoglycemia for today. For the last question, why don't we do one suggested by one of our listeners, Whitney. Thanks for the suggestion. It looks like a tough one. A healthy six-year-old boy presents to the ED with bloody diarrhea. He was in his usual state of health until one week ago when he started having about 10 watery stools per day. He went to his pediatrician four days ago and stool cultures were sent there. Now he's noting blood and pus in his stool as well as a low-grade fever. He has no recent travel, antibiotic use, or known sick contacts. He's mildly tachycardic and febrile. On exam, he has a tender abdomen without localization. Rectal exam shows grossly bloody stool. You speak with a pediatrician who reports that the child's stool culture was positive for Shigella. Which of the following statements is true? Is it A, antibiotics should be avoided because this is a severe case and the patient is at high risk of developing hemolytic uremic syndrome? Is it B, 
antidiarrheal agents are indicated given the frequency of loose stools. C, extraintestinal manifestations such as hallucinations, confusion, and seizures may occur. Or D, oral rehydration should be avoided and IV fluids should be initiated. Wow, lots of words there that really boils down to essentially a very short question. Which is true regarding invasive shigellosis? The answer to this question is choice C, extraintestinal manifestations such as hallucination, confusion, and seizures may occur. That's right, but there's a lot more to gain from this question. Let's dive a bit deeper. Shigella can cause an invasive diarrhea that most commonly affects infants between 2 and 3 years old and is very rarely seen in those younger than 3 months. It's transmitted by the fecal-oral route, and the range of illness it can cause is broad from mild presentations with abdominal cramping to more severe presentations with dysentery, which this patient has, which is diarrhea with blood, pus, and mucus. Potential complications include bacteremia and sepsis in addition to the extraintestinal manifestations I just mentioned, like seizures, confusion, and hallucinations. In severe cases like this one, antibiotics may well be warranted. But be careful, there are subtleties here. In general, with invasive bacterial GI illnesses in children, antibiotics should be avoided. This is because if the patient were to be infected with E. coli 0157H7 and you were to give empiric antibiotics, as the antibiotic kills the E. coli, this would cause a massive release of the Shigella-like toxin. This release could lead to well-known complications like HUS. Right, but in this case, we already have a stool culture, so treating with antibiotics is safe. Therefore, choice A, which states antibiotics should be avoided because this is a severe case, is in fact wrong. As we discussed last week, in many cases of shigellosis, we will want to give antibiotics. Choice B, antidiarrheal agents are indicated. That's also wrong because slowing gut motility can actually worsen the bowel wall invasion and prolong the infection. And lastly, choice D, avoiding oral rehydration, That's wrong as well, because oral rehydration should certainly be attempted prior to initiating IV fluids. Since this little guy isn't vomiting, he's likely to be able to tolerate fluids too. Great question with lots of key points. Thanks, Whitney, for the suggestion. We also discussed a different Shigella question in episode 35, so be sure to check that out as well for some related pearls. As you all go through the question bank, don't forget that you too can request us to review a question by writing Roshcast in the submit feedback box in your actual exam. All right, time to close this episode out with a rapid review. Chlamydial pneumonia is often found in infants 3 to 16 weeks old. They usually present non-toxic appearing and afebrile, but they have tachypnea and a staccato cough with or without Rawls. 50% also have conjunctivitis. Treat with azithromycin. Infants with parainfluenza virus typically present with coryza, a low-grade fever, followed by a classic barking cough of croup. Infants with RSV present with lower respiratory tract infections like bronchiolitis. Measles presents with a fever, followed by a rash and complex spots. Mumps is associated with an infectious parotitis. Infants with parvovirus B19 often present with erythema infectiosum with the classic slap cheek appearance. Rubella, also called German measles, often presents with a mild febrile illness with a diffuse maculopapular rash, generalized malaise, and also lymphadenopathy. When choosing an ET tube for children, for uncuffed tubes, take the age, divide it by 4, and add 4. For cuffed tubes, take the age, divide it by 4, and add 3.5. Retinal hemorrhages are the most common manifestation of abusive head trauma in infants. Posterior rib fractures without overlying bruises, metaphyseal fractures, sternal fractures, scapular fractures, and skull fractures should raise your suspicion for non-accidental trauma. For hypoglycemic kids less than one year old, use D10, 
5 to 10 milliliters per kilogram. For hypoglycemic children 1 to 8 years old, use D25, 2 to 4 milliliters per kilogram. And for hypoglycemic children over 8, use D50, 1 to 2 milliliters per kilogram. Extraintestinal manifestations of Shigella include confusion, hallucinations, and seizures. For children concerning for shigellosis, treat supportively with PO fluids if tolerated. Antidiarrheal agents should be avoided, and depending on the situation, antibiotics may be needed. Alright, so that wraps up Roshcast episode number 36. Be sure to check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help you prepare for the boards and for the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at Rosh Review. And you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. And remember that you can always help us pick questions by identifying ones you want us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review.